T-minus 20 seconds and counting. Booster engine gimbal now underway. T-minus 10, 9... Seven men and women boarded the Space Shuttle Challenger on January 28, 1986. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Their mission was to deploy a new satellite and study Halley's Comet. I was in NASA, in the archives, working on a book, and a friend of mine runs into the archives and said, Jim, the Challenger just blew up. Just 73 seconds after launch, the shuttle exploded, killing everyone on board. So I ran down to the room in the building that had TVs and immediately saw the coverage. James Hansen is a historian of science and technology and expert in aerospace history. He wrote the book Truth, Lies, and O-Rings, Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster. Of course, it's not just a story from the history books for James. He was there. And he remembers that Challenger launch felt special to America. This was the first time a civilian was traveling into space. NASA had run a national competition and awarded the honor to a young teacher named Krista McCulloch. She was selected from a pool of more than 10,000 applicants. And to have her part of the crew when this terrible, terrible thing happens, it made it a much bigger deal, you know. She was one of us. Everybody felt like they had a major loss in their own family. And the story became, well, what, what happened? How did this happen? Answering that question revealed much more than a technical malfunction. The inquiry exposed a deeper problem, an organizational culture issue, a breach of trust that paved the way for disaster. I'm Shaleen Gupta, and this is Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. In each episode, we examine stories from the past, moments when companies and organizations broke that crucial element, trust. These are fascinating and sometimes tragic stories, but they also show us how businesses and organizations can do better today. We're learning how to build and repair the superpower of trust. This time with the Challenger story, we're looking at what happens when employees feel empowered to speak up, what happens when they don't, and how you can create a culture in your business where that can happen. It's not just about saying what you want when you want to say it, but it's also how the company reacts to it. That's Jisha Diamond. She's going to help us draw lessons from the Challenger story. But first, we need to revisit the critical 24 hours before the launch to understand how the crisis might have been averted. James Hansen's journey into the Challenger disaster began with a call from Alan McDonald. Alan McDonald passed away in 2021 at the age of 83. But he'll forever be remembered for the work he did on the space shuttle. Alan was an engineer at Morton Thiokol, the company that built the rocket boosters for NASA. You've seen those huge tanks on the side of space shuttles, the tanks full of fuel. Those are the rocket boosters that Morton Thiokol built, a huge responsibility, and Alan was the head of that program. 
Al got in touch with me after I had done the Neil Armstrong biography, and he had prepared like 2,500 pages of manuscript that he wanted help in turning into a readable book. It was really important for him to go on the record and to say something that would be lasting about what had happened. So what did happen that winter day? To begin with, you first need to understand what NASA was like in the 1980s. NASA was a very confident organization, and with good reason. These are the people who won the space race in the 1960s and put humanity on the moon. That triumph led to the shuttle program. The shuttle was the world's first reusable spaceship. It represented a new era of space travel, one that would make spaceflight more routine and might one day make the final frontier accessible to everyone. NASA's first step towards making that dream a reality was adding more missions to the launch schedule. Unfortunately, there were a few hiccups. Missions had to be rescheduled, so by the time the Challenger was ready to launch Krista McAuliffe into orbit, NASA was already feeling pressure to keep things on track. The Challenger was supposed to go up a couple of days earlier, and there was problems with strong winds that scrubbed and delayed the launch, and then there was a problem with the door handle in the orbiter that was also a problem. And then there was another complication. Alan gets a call from a friend, and the friend tells him that he just heard a weatherman in Orlando on a TV station predicted that the temperatures in central Florida were going to be quite frigid and maybe down into the mid-teens, which was really unheard of for that part of Florida. Well, when Alan heard that, he immediately starts worrying. So why is Alan worried about a bit of cold? The danger here has to do with something called an O-ring. The O-ring is the rubberized seal that sits between segments of the rocket booster. A year earlier, Allen and his team at Morton Thiokol discovered that the O-ring malfunctioned in colder temperatures. In previous tests, there was evidence that some soot had even got through the O-ring seals during a launch. They just sort of froze and became, you know, not so rubberized, not so elastic. And they had to be in order to seal those joints properly. Some of the gases, hot gases, could get through a seal. So the data was a little scary. If the seals broke down and burning propellant leaked outside of the casing, well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to imagine what would happen next. Further inspection revealed that the O-ring started to fail at 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Morton Thiokol reported the issue to NASA. So when the forecast on the day of the launch was supposed to be 22 degrees, cold enough to produce ice on the launch pad, Allen is understandably concerned. And so he gets on the horn back with Morton Thakal, and he says, we need to get our engineers together and really talk through this because this temperature is different than anything we've ever launched in before. Why don't we, in fact, do a teleconference? The history of teleconferences isn't usually all that exciting, but this one was momentous. On January 27th, The day before the launch, Morton Thiokol's engineers in Utah called NASA. Alan McDonald was on location for the launch at the Kennedy Space Center, so he wasn't in the room with the other Morton Thiokol engineers. He joined the call from Florida. The teleconference was, in a way, the first spark that led to the Challenger disaster. The Morton engineers 
recommend strongly that NASA not launch the shuttle. After all the delays, this is not what NASA wants to hear. A man named Lawrence Malloy, Larry Malloy, who's a program manager, a NASA guy, he's questioning, well, why are you, I mean, this data to us seems a little bit muddled. We're not really clear about this whole issue. The conversation takes a critical turn here. NASA stops asking the engineers, is it safe? And starts asking them to prove the launch isn't safe. He wants them to give conclusive evidence that the O-rings will fail. That's like flipping the logic of the engineering launch decision on its head. I mean, their entire experience as engineers and, and working with NASA has been, you have to tell us it's safe. Is it safe to launch? It goes against all of their training, all of their education, all of their experience. The engineers, to their credit, pushed back and kept warning them that This could be catastrophic. We could lose an orbiter, we could lose a crew, we could lose a launch pad. Hearing all that, NASA's Larry Malloy says, My God, Thiokol, you want me to wait till April to launch? The call had escalated from an engineering report to a real confrontation. They actually said very specifically, we are appalled by this recommendation by you. And Thiokol's engineers in the room realize that NASA's not happy with this decision. An unhappy client the size of NASA would give anyone pause. But Morton Thiokol management had also heard rumors that NASA was looking for a second supplier for their rocket boosters. If that happened, they could lose millions. So the folks at Morton Thiokol in Utah asked for a five-minute caucus to hop off the call and talk things over privately. Alan's in Florida, so he's not in the private meeting with the rest of his team. Once they're off the call, the Morton Thiokol managers turn to their engineers and say, Look at it from the point of view of the company as a whole. Put on your management hat and take off your engineering hat and sort of look at it from our point of view. What do we need to do to make NASA happy? In other words, stop looking at this from an engineer's perspective and think about this as a business decision. That's a breaking of a trust, of a very vital trust between between colleagues. And I can imagine that there was some strong vocal expressions of dissent from the engineers. The five-minute break turned into a half-hour debate. When the teleconference reconvened and they got back on the phone with NASA, Morton Thiokol had changed their story. They were now recommending to go ahead with the launch. Al was astonished. He, he had no idea what could have happened during that caucus. But he really was stunned and so surprised by the result that he was almost speechless. But NASA was happy Morton Thiokol changed their position. NASA didn't ask them either why you're changing. I mean, they, if they were really concerned about the data, they'd say, well, what did you find in the data that changed your mind? They didn't even ask that question. But what they did do, which gives away a lot, is that Malloy said, what we want now is a written statement where you are telling us that Morton Thiokol has approved us going ahead to launch. NASA had never requested written approval from Morton Thiokol before. Sign-off had always been verbal. Hearing this, Alan suspects that as the head of the rocket booster program, he'll be asked to write up the approval. Alan made it clear, I'm not going to do that. And if you want it done, you're going to have to do it yourself. He wouldn't want to be the person that had to stand in front of a board of inquiry to explain why NASA launched the shuttle outside of the qualification of the solid rocket motor. 
So his managers at Morton Thiokol penned the approval. But Alan was the boots on the ground in Florida for his company. And Al had no choice but to go and pick it up from the fax machine and, and hand deliver it. I mean, it was not something he wanted to do and probably regretted the rest of his life. The launch was scheduled for 9 o'clock the next morning. Excited, bundled up onlookers gather near the Kennedy Space Center as a crew go out twice to knock ice off of the rocket boosters. The weather is so bad, Alan is still in disbelief that there can be a launch. When he arrives, he's confident that they, they just can't launch in these conditions. Meanwhile, the rest of America is full of anticipation. TV cameras are trained on the shuttle, ready to capture this historic moment. Teacher Krista McAuliffe is about to become the first civilian to go to space. Children in schools all across the country had their televisions rolled into their classrooms and they were all chanting, you know, 10, 9, 8. They were counting the countdown and cheering as it went up. ABC News, I think, had done a story where they were in the classroom with Krista McAuliffe's students watching the TV during the launch. And to see the expression on those kids' faces when that shuttle exploded was just unbelievable. The whole country goes into a kind of shock. But Alan McDonald feels something else. He feels such a strong sense of responsibility. And uh, Alan's thinking about his own family because he knows his children, you know, and his wife are watching. And they are proud of what their father has done for the space program. And now this has happened. What could have changed things? What might have saved those lives? The public wanted answers, too. Within 24 hours... President Reagan launched a commission to find out what went wrong, the Rogers Commission. Ladies and gentlemen, I now would like to call this first meeting of the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident to order. First witnesses... NASA makes it clear to its contractors, specifically to Morton Thakal, that it's going to handle all of the presentations to the Presidential Commission. I'm Larry Malloy. I'm currently the uh, manager of the Space Shuttle... What's interesting is that when Larry Malloy makes the day-long presentation, he's using view graphs that Alan McDonald had presented to NASA weeks earlier. The putty tends to extrude into the gap. It does not uh, extrude totally. As NASA's Larry Malloy began explaining what happened, Alan McDonald was sitting at the back of the room, listening. NASA said nothing about a teleconference, said nothing about a caucus, said nothing about, you know, anything that we now know took place the night before. One of the people sitting on the Rogers Commission is Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. She flew on Challenger shuttle missions twice herself and had been listening carefully to Larry Malloy's testimony. She said, "Uh, Mr. Malloy, uh, before we get back to your presentation, she had these pink slips in her hand. I have a series of messages, telephone messages that came for me, and I answered a number of them during lunch. She continues to explain that one of the messages was from somebody claiming that a NASA contractor had recommended delaying the launch. Then she asks, Is there any truth to that? Malloy answered, Well, yes, you know, and we had a teleconference with Morton Thiokol and holds up the launch recommendation facts, the paper, and says, uh, yeah, and they gave us a written recommendation to go ahead with the launch. Alan couldn't sit silent any longer. The surprise of everyone in the room, he gets up from his seat and starts walking toward the conference table. 
Mr. McDonald, I think you probably, if you take the middle chair, it might be best. I think he was both scared and nervous, but he was also angry. And Alan gave a long testimony to the committee himself. Well, as I recall, uh, there were some fairly strong comments about being appalled uh, by the recommendation, about trying to... After which, Sally Ride came up to him and gave him a hug and told him how important it was that he, that he told the committee, took the positions that he had. Alan McDonald's testimony was a turning point for the Rogers Commission, but he knew he was risking his career by speaking up. What did Al's company think about him after he became so this so-called whistleblower? Well, what did they do? They took his job away from him within the Solid Rocket Booster Program, and they put him in charge of scheduling. Scheduling. If Morton Thiokol was trying to punish Alan, it wasn't necessary. Engineers like Alan McDonald felt incredible guilt and regret for not doing more to prevent the launch. I had no idea there was a whistleblower, and I'm, I'm shocked that I didn't know that given just what I do. Jisha Diamond again. Jisha is the chief ethics and compliance officer at OneTrust. Jisha was only a kid when the Challenger exploded, but that disaster resonates in the work she does today. The fact that there was a whistleblower, someone saying that there was a problem, it really shocked and angered me, to be honest. Creating a safe space for those who need to speak up is a crucial part of Jisha's work. And it all starts with a healthy workplace culture. And that culture has to make space for ethical behavior. It's a simple concept, but one that's often forgotten. There's a quote, and I don't know who to attribute to, that I go back to a lot, which is that business without ethics is a caricature and ethics without a business is a pipe dream. They're hand in hand. There's this sort of balance that has to happen. Finding that balance can be a challenge. But today, it's more important than ever. Anyone can easily look up a company's history and find out if they've acted unethically or how they responded to a challenging situation. It's all right there for anyone to see. This generation, I think they are very conscious of who they do business with. And I think companies that don't care about the world around them or their people really risk losing that trust with their consumer base as well as their employees. And all of these things are needed to run a business. For Jisha, the companies that build real trust with their customers and employees are the ones who work to prioritize building a healthy corporate culture. I mean, look, culture is a big topic. It covers a lot of ground, right? We're talking about patterns of, you know, how humans behave, beliefs, and, you know, social norms. It really is about how we act within a tribe, right? I think if we were to go back to that time, if we asked an employee at NASA to identify what are NASA's values, it probably wasn't geared towards people and how we interact with the people in our tribe. And that's the major issue at the heart of the Challenger disaster. For Jisha, one of the biggest drivers of workplace culture is how employees interact. Do they feel like they can share their ideas and opinions with management, even if it might ruffle some feathers? Can they speak up? And when they do, do they feel heard? I think a culture of speaking up is really about allowing open debate, allowing people to be authentic. It creates an opportunity for them to be happy, to be employees that feel like they're bringing their whole selves to work. Surprisingly, 
It's sometimes the really successful organizations, the NASAs of the world, where culture has to be most closely watched. Because when a company starts to accomplish amazing things, those accomplishments can begin to blind them. It becomes all about the next big success around the corner. NASA had a lot of amazing success. They were doing things in an incredibly fast pace. I think there's this sort of shift that happens with risk. It's a bit of a drift that happens. Risk drift is what we call it. Something is successful despite risk, right? Something successful happens. You manage to skirt the probability of failure, and now your risk tolerance gets a little bit bigger, right? And that's a big set of factors that contribute to culture. A bias like that has consequences. NASA's amazing success in the past caused them to ignore risk in the present. As that risk drift continues, a company can start to believe it can do no wrong. So when someone does speak up, when they say, hey, we need to rethink this, there's less incentive to pump the brakes and listen. Think about how NASA's managers reacted to Alan McDonald and his fellow engineers. NASA said, we are appalled by this recommendation by you. And that's sort of the epitome of unhealthy debate, right? One side isn't listening. They just want to get to the answer that they want to hear, and they're going to say what they want to say and push back until they get it. And silencing dissent like this often has unintended consequences. So then the question becomes, how do you foster speak-up culture? A good first step is protecting those who step forward. It's a question of like, am I going to be punished? Is my manager going to fire me? Is my next performance review going to be a complete disaster because I did this? You have to create values, establish the values under which you operate, right? And you also have to create incentives for those who operate under the values and disincentives for those who do not. Um, and this includes everyone from the CEO to the board of directors and down. If your youngest employee can't speak up, the culture you've set up is one for failure. And naturally, when speak-up culture becomes hush-up culture, the company loses out too. Huge employee turnover is a big risk and a, a big cost. And so then you don't have employees that have incredible, valuable expertise raising important concerns. So there's a concrete advantage to fostering transparency and open communication. And there are concrete ways to start signaling that that's the culture you want to promote. I mean, certainly there are things that we can do right now, like employee surveys, right? If you can get the right questions into those surveys and the right cadence and the right participation, you can get a sense of, you know, whether your employees feel like they can raise things to their managers, for example, or that if they do raise something to their manager, that their manager will respond. But fostering a culture where employees can share dissenting views or simply feel like their ideas are valued is just the beginning. Once people are waving red flags or blowing whistles, it's management's job to know how to respond. There are two key moments in the Challenger story that demonstrate how not to do it. The first moment comes when Morton Thiokol Management asks its engineers, take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat. In doing so, they framed an ethical decision, a major safety issue, as a business decision. You know, studies show that when individuals see uh, a decision through an ethical frame, they behave ethically far more 
than not. And when individuals see the same decision through a business frame, the numbers shift. They shift a lot. Anton Brunsell, a professor of business ethics at the University of Notre Dame, found that framing a question in an ethical way leads to ethical behavior 50% more often. Morton Diacol was probably incredibly thrilled and honored to be this contractor or partner to NASA. So I think the pressure probably was there. We have to kind of make this very important client happy. It shifted everything, right? The managers at NASA also make a similar framing mistake on the night of the teleconference. Instead of asking the engineers to provide evidence that the O-ring was safe, NASA asked them to prove the O-ring was unsafe. Jisha refers to this as the smoking gun trap, and she sees it happen all the time in many different industries. Any company will have risk conversations at any given day about what's the probability of X happening? What is the impact if that does happen? So you create this analysis. But if the question posed to the employees by management is, well, prove it's going to happen, it's impossible. You're basically saying this is the answer that we want to get to. And that can shut down uncomfortable but important conversations. Ultimately, listening to those who speak up and framing your response in the right way depends on one simple question. Every company will have strategic objectives or goals that they want to accomplish, revenue forecasts, whatever. And I think the question comes down to how you accomplish those objectives just as much as whether you accomplish them, right? Here's another way to think about it. Are you building trust over the long run? NASA managers were willing to strong-arm one of their vendors to meet their launch schedule. Morton Thiokol prioritized keeping a client happy over doing things the right way. Both hindered the ability of employees to speak up. And once that's your culture, it takes a long time to recover. At the end of the day, if you accomplish those objectives, but you have a scorched earth behind you, what's the point, right? Like, do you have any employees left? Again, it's the tone that management sets to say, look guys, we want to do things the right way. Culture is so much about the hows. How do we communicate? How do we accomplish our goals? How do we react when we don't accomplish our goals, right? That's really where I think culture lives at the end of the day. Mistakes and even disasters are a part of life, but unethical practices and cultures of silence don't have to be. Let's posit the scenario, right? Where they came to the same decision, but in the right way. I, I think it's a very different conversation we're having now. I think if they had been part of a robust debate and they had been heard and they still go ahead and the same result happens, maybe, you know, Alan McDonald wouldn't have been a whistleblower. Alan eventually got his old job back. Congress was grateful he spoke up and passed a resolution stating that Morton Thiokol had to reinstate him. In the end, his bravery may well have saved the lives of future astronauts. And then Al, as a result of that, was put in charge of Thiokol's complete redesign of the solid rocket motor. And it was under Al's supervision that that was done, and it was done masterfully. Alan's story is a reminder that how we do things matters as much as getting them done. Speak Up Culture and the way we frame decisions are the building blocks of safety, success, and trust. 
Because sometimes the crucial truth is already being said out loud. And the real test is whether or not we listen. Till next time, I'm Shaleen Gupta, and this is Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Trust.